right. Well, good morning, church. Everyone have a good Thanksgiving. How many of you woke up on Friday thinking you had to go to church? Was that just me? <laughs> oh, man. I love, 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 love the Thanksgiving holiday. I have to say it, it's right up. It almost beats Christmas. Uh, does it? Yeah, it does. So anyway, I, I'm just thankful that we have that particular, uh, that particular holiday. So um, <clears throat> my voice is going fast. My voice is going out, so we're going to push through. Um, we are starting a series, and obviously you probably expected this, but it's a series that's going to lead us straight to the birth of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, it seems fitting. I know we're in November, but there was an interesting conversation that I had recently with a, a woman who, um, we, we were talking theology, which I love to do, and we were just kind of bouncing ideas back and forth, that type of thing. And she said to me something very peculiar. She said, have you ever thought that there are six levels of relationship?" And I didn't know what she was talking about. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said that when we talk about the relationship specifically between us and God, that there are six levels that have been expressed through Scripture. And she began to explain these to me. And I've debated in my head whether I should give you the full six up front. But we, we are going to talk about one of them. Because the very first one that she talked to me about was one that you see in the Old Testament primarily. And it is the relationship between what is called the potter and the clay. And what we're going to do is this, is each week what I would like to do is to explore another level of relationship. I know there are less than six weeks leading up to Christmas. Don't worry, I'll handle that part. But I want to walk through what it means to have these, these different levels of relationship. Now, if you're like my son who likes to figure things out because he's incredibly smart, you can go ahead and open your Bibles and try to figure it out yourself. And you can give me your guesses, or you can come with patience week by week and explore the next level of relationship that we have with God. What I like about this particular series is that it addresses several questions that I feel as though we continually ask ourselves. Questions like this. Have you ever wished that things were different? Have you ever questioned that maybe the way things are doesn't make sense? Have you ever thought that maybe you were dealt an unfair hand, right? Have you ever reflected perhaps on your life, both in the past and maybe even in the present, and struggled to actually like the person that you are today? I'll just tell you right now, I think we all struggle to some different degree with that particular question. Here's what I want you to do right now. Because of the size of, of, of our church, um, I really believe that God is going to bless our church, and we should value the size that we currently have. That's me insinuating that we're going to grow. Um, but because we are the size that we are, I always love it when we're able to share. And so I'm going to give you a question right now, and I want you to ponder it, and it's going to come up later in the lesson this morning. And the, the question is this. When did you have a difficult time a difficult time, it could be because of your own fault, be honest, or because of just the circumstances around you. It had nothing to do with your fault. But when have you experienced a difficult time that ended up making you stronger? That ended up perhaps making you closer to God? That ended up in some particular way having a positive effect on you today? That's created who you are today. 
Now listen, when I ask this particular question, we don't have time for five-minute stories. So try to condense it to about two or three sentences, okay? But I would love for you to share. When have you had a difficult time that ended up making you stronger or perhaps even closer to God? If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Jeremiah. Um, I only really had about two, two and a half uh, working days in the past two weeks or so. Um, and so I didn't have any slides prepared for you today. Um, so you'll just have to follow along. We're going to be in Jeremiah, and we're going to specifically be in Jeremiah chapter 18. But Jeremiah is this prophet, and for those of you who have some familiarity with, with Christianity and perhaps even the Old Testament, what is he referred to as? The weeping, right? The weeping prophet, which, I mean, when I first heard that, I'm kind of like, okay, get over it. No, I didn't say that. But, you know, it's like, is he, why is he so depressed? I mean, why would he be called the weeping prophet? Um, essentially, he, he lived at a time, it was a, I, I would say that it's a very pivotal time, but he lived at a time that was about 620 years before Jesus Christ um, when he would, um, he essentially would be the prophet for King Josiah and about five kings that would lead up to a very pivotal moment in Jewish history where Babylon would eventually come down and overthrow the people. Now, this was prophesied by God, and even though Josiah at the time, King Josiah was a good king, this is down in Judah, even though he was a good king, the reforms that he had didn't stick. The idolatry began to find its way back in amongst the people, and they knew it. And so God took Jeremiah and said, I need you to deliver a message. And Jeremiah did the, the classic thing like Moses does. He's like, no, 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 not me. I'm, I'm not a good speaker. And so, and, and God says, okay, I'm going to put my word on your tongue, <laughs> you know, and he, and he does that. And it's amazing because later in the, in the Bible, I would love to do a whole study on this. Later in, in, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, he's going to say things like, I tried to keep my mouth shut. I could not. It was like something was burning inside of me. And try as I may, I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. And so he became essentially the mouthpiece for God. And the message that he was delivering to people, it was not a good one. It did not give you warm fuzzies. It was a message of destruction. He was saying, listen, unless you change your ways, bad stuff is going to happen. And it was not received well. And because of it, he mourned quite often. <clears throat> so in chapter 18, we hear these words. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Another message to Jeremiah, and he said, go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. And so I did, as he told me, and I found the potter working at his will. But the jar that he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. And then the Lord gave me this message. O oh, Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to this clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, repents of its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. But if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns to evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said that I would. And so you have this beautiful, really, this illustration for Jeremiah. He gets to... You know, he gets to see a living example of this potter that, that's, that's working on this piece of art. It doesn't go so well, right? What you find is that there is these 
these images of potter and clay that are kind of scattered throughout the Old Testament, even somewhat referenced in the New Testament, which we're going to go over. And what I'd like to do is this, is I want to break down three, three aspects of that particular illustration between the potter and the clay so that we can understand this relationship that we have with God, this particular level of relationship that we have with God. The first is this, that we are the clay, that the clay is a symbol of humanity. Now, many of you probably already uh, connected the dots for that, but it's an, important, it's an important symbol. And there are a few things that I want to point out because even though this message was delivered to Jeremiah for a specific purpose to those people at that time, this analogy sticks. You'll find it woven, as I said, throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah re references ourselves as clay. Job talks about being clay. And so you look at this, and it's a symbol of humanity. And the first thing that I want to point out is this, that God obviously doesn't give up on the clay that's being destroyed. He doesn't give up on it. I mean, I'll go back and read it again. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop. I'll speak to you there. So I did, and I went, and I found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar that he was making this project, whatever it was, this piece of art, it did not turn out <clears throat> as he had hoped. I hear sometimes what will happen is, is you, you might get a pebble or there might be some impurities in the clay. And as you're doing it, the way that the clay is, is wrapping around your fingers, you know, it can create these unsightly marks or whatever it might be. Something happened. Maybe the clay was too wet. Who knows? And it, it didn't turn out. And so it says he crushed it. Now, listen, the text could have ended there. He crushed it. Okay, because that's still a pretty good symbol of what's about to come, right? But what does it say? It says that he crushed it into a lump of clay and again started over. I think this is the very, very foundation of what we need to be considering today. You know, if, if you work with marginalized youth, right, or if you have people in your lives that have suffered from alcoholism, mental health issues, you know as well as I that there can be a certain level of desperation that then Satan uses to whisper in the ear and it drives down deep into the heart. People begin to, to devalue who they were or to consider the fact that maybe God made a mistake. Maybe this particular project is worthy to just simply be crushed. And what's the point? It doesn't have to stay that way. The lump of clay is still on the wheel. In Acts chapter 9, we read an interesting story. So Acts chapter 9, the book of Acts is talking about the spread of Christianity, but it begins with some, some interesting details. One of them is, is there's a man named Saul who's persecuting the church. When I say persecuting, I mean violently terrorizing the church. He would go into different places, and he would throw Christians out in the street. He would make sure that they either were imprisoned or killed or something. And then he has a, a literal come-to-Jesus moment. Jesus shows up, and he's blinded on a road. He says the classic words, why are you persecuting me, right? And he, he sends Saul to a particular person named Ananias. He also then, God also communicates with Ananias and says, hey, listen, Saul, yeah, that Saul, is, is in this particular place, and you need to go tend to him. Listen to what Ananias says in verse 14. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, you know, Reminder, God, in case you weren't watching this, this is what's happened. And so here he has authority from the chief priests 
He can bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel, a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And you have to admire Ananias' courage. But isn't it interesting how he refers to Saul, who would later be called Paul, who we all know as the Apostle Paul, that he's this vessel. Something important is inside. This vessel has been created the way that I want it to be created. And even if it wasn't, then I have recreated it. And this clay is in my hands. And this is important to me. You may not see it, but I see it. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's fascinating because sometimes even though we read these particular, you know, scriptures, we look at our life or maybe we look at the mistakes. Maybe we look at whatever it is around us that causes us such despair and we can't help but question. There's a classic sermon illustration. This sermon illustration is over 200 years old and essentially it, it it, it says this. There's an old poem that tells the story of a woman who was walking through a meadow. And as she strolled along meditating on nature, she came upon a field that was ripe with large pumpkins. In the corner of the field stood a majestic oak tree. The woman who was weary, she sat down under this oak, and she began to think about the strange twists in nature. She looked up and she saw the acorns and she saw how these tiny little acorns were hung on huge branches. And then she looked over and she saw these huge pumpkins and how they sat on tiny little vines. And she thought, wow, God must have blundered with this creation. He should have put the small acorns on the tiny vines and the large pumpkins on the huge branches. As she thought of this, she fell into a deep sleep. She was awakened by a tiny acorn bouncing off of her nose. Chuckling to herself, she amended her previous thought and said, just goes to show, I guess maybe God knows what he's doing. The classic story, right? Do we trust that? Do we trust this idea that God knows what he's doing? Do we really look at the things that we don't like, the things that we have done, the mistakes that we've made, the ways in which we've caused pain to other people? And trust that God knew what he was doing when he made who I am today. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says, but we have this treasure, this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. It's interesting because God uses such adversity and experiences to mold us into Christ-likeness, which leads me to my second part. The second part is, so you have the clay, but you also have the wheels. Now, that's literally how it's translated, the wheels. I'll read it to you. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop. I'll speak to you there. So I did as he told me, and I found the potter working the wheels. Is the original translation, or at the wheel is how you might have your translation. What's he referring to? Well, there were two wheels, Right? So there was one wheel, and it was made of stone, and it was at the bottom, and then there would be a spindle, and then at about the height of a table would be the second wheel, all right? And what you did is you sat at this particular contraption, and you moved it with your feet. So you'd spin this particular, you know, 
potter's wheel with your feet. And that would then allow you to put the clay in the center of the top stone. And then using water on your hands, you would then begin to shape this lump of clay into whatever it is that you were, you were making at the time. But there were essentially two wheels. And what's fascinating is that, honestly, that's kind of what they are today. Even thousands of years later, we're still using uh, an invention that was, you know, has stood the test of time. But what's fascinating about this is that when we think of the wheels, what are we thinking of? When you're thinking of life's circumstances. In other words, here are the circumstances that surround us, and we are being shaped. And as I said before, something went wrong as Jeremiah is staring at this. It could have been a pebble that was on the particular wheel at that time. The circumstances around this whole project somehow had an effect. So what happens when the circumstances come into play? I think what's, what's interesting is this, is I sometimes feel, and I, I know you've perhaps felt the same way, that our circumstances, the things that happen in our life, the thing that you might be thinking of right now, can destroy that work of art that God has made. That somehow we can pollute it, and now there's no hope of what the, uh, the potter might do. The only way in which the, the, the final creation can finally reach a state where it is no longer moldable is for it to be put into the oven, which is a kiln, and fired, right? How many of you have had a pottery class before? Yeah? yeah? Okay, quite a few of you, right? And so you take it and you, and you put it in the oven, and I've never been there when they put it in the oven. I've always wondered. I have, like, these pictures in my mind of something that's in a fable or something. You put it in the oven, and it cooks, and when it comes out, if you had used these different glazing paints, etc., it's supposed to look beautiful, Right? Now, how many of you have had your child make you something out of clay? Right? Oh, man, it's always beautiful. It doesn't, even, it doesn't even matter if you don't know what it is that they've handed you. It's just something gorgeous about it. But the point is this, is that it's only after the fire has come in contact with that clay that it's able to harden and actually be the perfect shape that it was meant to be. And the question that I have for you is in the line with this analogy, at what point? At what point? Do people really find themselves in a spot where they have finally become so concrete that they are no longer able to change? Now, you can look throughout the Bible and you'll see different situations. You'll see one where there's this man named Pharaoh who will not let the Hebrew nation go, right? And his heart is hardened. You may see King Saul, who was the first king, and his heart became hardened. And you may say, well, there are times on this earth where we become hardened and there is no hope. But this is my opinion. This is J.D. speaking to you, and I'm going to tell you this. I simply believe that we should just assume that everyone, including yourself, is still moldable and that you are the clay on this wheel. And despite the circumstances, that the final fire that we're talking about, it may be the fires that you're walking through right now, but our final creation will happen once we are reunited with God. I believe that all of us are still on the wheel, regardless of the mistakes that we have. So I'll just tell you a few of my own. I've made mistakes in how I treat, and I'll just be honest, and how I view women. I'm ashamed. When I look back 20 years, I'm embarrassed and, and even ashamed at the views that I had regarding the opposite sex and the ways in which I would treat them. 
I wish there was some way to write out a great big sorry across the sky. And I could have allowed that one detail that's on the potter's will to shape me in a negative way. Also, the way in which I communicate with my wife, believe it or not, that's still a work in progress, right? <laughs> Amen. But I have learned so much because of the mistakes that I've made. The ways in which I discipline my children. The importance of an education. And then when we get to the spiritual stuff, I've already talked to you about this before, but the Bible is not a weapon. And I made that mistake. And I'm so embarrassed when I look back. It's like, thank God, he's merciful. And he was somehow able to penetrate inside of me a measure of humility that let me see I can't use this to hurt people and abuse people, specifically the ones who I disagree with. I, I had to learn that. I've learned that people are not projects. And it's extremely subtle sometimes. But people are not projects. None of you are. When we sit and have coffee, I'm not clocking in and doing my pastor duty, right? I've had to learn that, though, because I have treated people as projects. I've had to look at that mistake and see that it's a part of how I've been shaped today. I've learned that people who are smarter and more educated than myself have arrived at different interpretations of the Bible. And this does not mean that they have bad motives because... I consider them to be wrong. Here's a fun fact. They might not be wrong. How about that? I've had to learn that. I've had to go through this life with those kinds of mistakes. And even silly little mistakes. Recently, I was a judge over at uh, a speech meet. Um, I think Katie was there as well. Um, and, and, oh, and Dylan, you were too. That's right. That's right. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? And so um, I'm a judge, and probably like the two of them, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I competed in college, and so I had some sense of what I was doing, but they changed a bunch of rules. For one thing, the speaker has a timer, all of them. They carry them with them. And so they have this timer, and what they do is they set the timer on the desk in front of them. They announce to the judge that the timer is set to zero and that they're going to be counting down or counting up or whatever it is. I have, I have no idea what it means that they say to me. But they, they put that right there, and then they push the button to begin. So on the first round, I get to be a judge for seven speakers. I even give them a short, sweet little speech at the very beginning saying, you guys are conquering the greatest fear you know, of all humanity, et cetera, et cetera. I'm so proud of you. And then I say these stupid words. I have plenty of experience in this area. I literally said that. And the first speaker comes up to me, and she shows me the timer. So I reached out and grabbed it, put it on my desk. You know, and she, it, it caught her off guard. She, she looked at me. She's like, um, can I begin? And I said, yeah, go, beep, you know. <laughs> and so then the next person did and the next person and everything else. And they were so sweet about it. And they shook my hand and everything else. Then I found out, yeah, you idiot. They're supposed to keep the timer themselves. And I was talking to somebody about it the next day, and they, were, and, they were, and they said to me, I wasn't telling them this story. I was just talking with somebody else, and they were like, yeah, did you hear there's a judge that keeps taking kids' timers? <laughs> it's me. <laughs> I'm so proud of it. Isn't our life just a school of hard knocks? And yet God is so good that even when we fail, he continues to mold us, right? 
And he usually does it through the fires of life that he gives us. First Peter is talking about that. He's writing this letter to all these Christians that are scattered about because the persecution is so bad. And he says, there's wonderful joy ahead in chapter 1. Even though you must endure these trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire and purif that purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, so when your faith remains strong through these trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the entire world. James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter these trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing, that you may be perfect, that you are the final creation that's been put through the fire, and now you reflect the glory of God, how he intended to create you. Isn't that exciting? So what do we do with it all, right? So I encourage you in this way, endure. Endure the process. Endure the process. That's one more thing I've had to learn. It's okay if I embarrass myself like I did at this speech meet. I'm going to endure it, and I'm going to learn from it, and I'm going to continue to move forward. That's what we do. So real quick, if any of you have been, have been thinking about times in your life when you have experienced this, I just want you to share. We're only going to take a couple. So you just raise your hand and then speak very loudly for everyone else. Does anyone have anything that they would love to share? Go ahead, Julie. Julie. Moving from the only church she ever knew. Anybody else? Absolutely. Absolutely. And having grace for that church. Yeah. Totally. Anybody else? Come on. You guys aren't shy. Somebody said something. College. Just the word college? Like it's one big mistake? No. It was rough. Okay, good. Any others? Yes, Chelsea. I mean, being removed from that school, I know, super painful. Oh, you're welcome. Anyone else? Last call.
Absolutely. I feel that. I feel your pain. <laughs> All right. I'll take one more if it's quick. Right, somebody. changing how you viewed Christianity as a whole. Oh, yeah, excellent. Yeah, it is tough. It's interesting. Uh, in Romans 9, we read these words. Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? If you for one moment suppose any of us knows enough to call God into question, clay doesn't talk back to the fingers that mold it, saying, why did you shape me like this? Isn't it obvious that a potter has a perfect right to shape one lump of clay into a vase for holding flowers and perhaps another into a pot for cooking beans? If anyone had anything to complain about, it would have definitely been Jeremiah. He certainly does lift up this particular complaint. He says these words. He says, oh, Lord, you misled me. I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am, and you have overpowered me, and now I am mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me. When I speak, the words burst out. Violence and destruction, I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I am worn out trying to hold it in, and I, I just can't do it. I curse the day that I was born. May no one celebrate the day of my birth. I cursed the messenger who told my father, good news, you have a son. Let him be destroyed like the cities of old that the Lord overthrew without mercy. Terrify him all day long with battle shouts because he did not kill me at birth. Oh, that I had died in my mother's womb, that her body had been my grave. Why was I ever born? My entire life has been filled with trouble, sorrow, and shame. And perhaps there's some of that that you can resonate with you, which brings us to our last point, and that is we have the picture of this potter, right, who represents God. In fact, it took me a while. At first, I was wondering if what Jeremiah went to go see at the potter's house was actually God himself, you know, or a theophany or some type of an image or something. No, all the commentaries agree it was probably just a potter, and that was his, his place of work. But the potter that's represented, whether it's in this particular story or in the words of Isaiah or in the words of Job and later in the New Testament, is that the potter is a picture of God and that he has absolute right. And that in this level of relationship, what we have is someone who is sovereign. And so even if we have and we weep like Jeremiah saying, cursed is the day that I was born, because sometimes it can feel that way. Who are we to question that sovereign God? And perhaps it's one of the most frustrating aspects of that relationship that we can't simply know. We want to know. We want to demand an answer from the potter saying, listen, you made me this way and I want to know why, right? But he has these reasons, this absolute right that he has to run the universe in the way that he wants to. But he created us for his own purposes. We have a use, usefulness that comes from being in his hands. Isaiah 64 says, but now, O oh Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. And there's something you should realize that is happening when somebody makes that vessel, that piece of pot. The potter's hand never leaves. It's always on and shaping and molding 
in that contact that we see. At this level of relationship, we experience the humility, the submission, and the trust of what it means to be connected with someone that we don't quite understand. To know that he cares for us, to know that even if we stumble, and even if because of our own choices, we turn into this horrible-looking vessel, that he will still crush it and make it new once again. And it's a fascinating relationship, and it's the first level of relationship. But what it teaches us at the foundational level, which is why I believe that we see so much of this in the Old Testament, is that there has to exist a trust. And that trust is what we then are able to build upon as we continue to talk about the other levels of relationship that we have. Jeremiah prophesies in Jeremiah chapter 23. He says this. He says, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land, and this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. And in that day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. Even Jeremiah is given a prophecy of someone who is coming, who is going to show a different level of relationship who's going to show that out of ugliness and even out of the ugliness of being born in a barn or a cave or whatever it might be, among animals, with the manure and all of the rest of it, that something beautiful would take shape. That's our theme as we move into the Christmas season, as we, we have our Christmas Eve service. By the way, I'll go ahead and make that announcement right now. It's one hour earlier. 9 p.m. this year for the first time in like six years or so. And the theme is something beautiful. And Jeremiah is predicting that something beautiful. And honestly, I hope we come to realize that the relationship that we have in God is that something beautiful. It exists in a way that's unique, that's never existed before, and has a certain level of power. So I hope you come back next week. We're going to step into the next level that Jeremiah actually even predicts. But the way I'd like to close right now is I want to do a quick exercise this comes from uh, a passage that I thought I just kind of stumbled into, and I, I guess I did, but now I look back and I think that God had his, had his hand in it. I would usually hike up Mount Jumbo when I was growing up. I would go up the Rattlesnake and Mount Jumbo. Those are my two favorite places to, to wander. I had this little Bible that I would take with me that had these cords wrapped around it, and then I also had another little journal, and I would write psalms, right? And I didn't want them to be like, inspired scripture, so I lettered them, Psalm A, Psalm B, Psalm C, that kind of thing. I look back on that, and it's kind of cheesy a little bit, and I read some of them, and I'm like, oh, this is really bad. But at the same time, at the time, it was my heart that was being poured out. And I remember one time I was sitting up um, on the saddle, and uh, I was looking at my, my Bible, and I opened up to the Psalms and just fell to Psalm 51, verse 10. And I didn't know that it would become such a popular verse at the time, but it it's been, songs have been written about it. But what I'm going to do is this. I want to read this psalm to you, just this one verse. But I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm going to repeat it, okay? I would love for you, with heads bowed and eyes closed, to just listen to the words, all right? And as you listen to these particular words, think of yourself as this piece of clay. Think of the fact that you may not even like that piece of clay, but that God is touching it and shaping it and molding it at this moment. Think about the ways in which you are living your life. And does it reflect the glory, the perfection 
that it one day will become. So, if you would, please close your eyes, bow your heads, and we'll close out with these words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Our great God, we bow before you. You continue to shape us and mold us. And I know there are so many imperfections and choices and mistakes that I've made and other people have made and the people in this room have made. But you're so gracious. Lord, we've rejected you. We've decided to pursue our own paths, the things that we want. But please continue to just start over or continue to spin the wheel and shape us. May we learn, may we grow stronger. May we endure the fire of whatever life is throwing at us in such a way that ultimately it results in this perfection that only you can give. But Lord, we thank you for this relationship. We thank you for the mystery of it. Even when we grow frustrated with the silence of the question why or how long. Lord, be with us in this life May we be that vessel that you have created so that just like that horrible man Saul, we're a vessel that contains something of tremendous value that you are preparing to send into this world. Allow us to trust that. Allow us to trust your love and to trust what you are shaping today. Thank you so much for all of these things. But Lord, we also thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life he led, 
the torture that he went through. His death, his burial, his resurrection. And Lord, we look forward to those days when we're united with him. Be with us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.